0: Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, page 1,088 of your Pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 2. We're working our way through the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, what we hope to do on Sunday nights is instead of going verse by verse through Revelation, I don't have the patience, the energy, or desire to do that, to be honest with you. Um, but what we'll do on Sunday nights is look at some of the major themes in Revelation. So we'll, look at, uh, we'll start that this evening, but we want to look at the church of Smyrna here this morning. Revelation chapter 2. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The Apostle John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, writes the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty to your rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are, are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. You may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's go Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for uh, allowing us even still, with with all the COVID stuff, still be able to gather, Lord. May, but may we be humbled by this text. So may you open our, our hearts and our mind and our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet, and our mouth, that we may receive, apply, and be transformed by your gospel. May I decrease, so you can increase. In the name of your son. We pray. Amen. You seated. are you someone who likes to hear good news or bad news first? You know what I'm talking about, right? Someone comes up and says, well, it's a doctor, right? Well, uh, I got good news or, or and I got some bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? Which one are you? I'm, I'm more of a, give me the bad news. Let's start down here. And it's all uphill after that, right? Rather than let's start at the top of the mountain and then you can just ruin my day. No, no, no. I, wanna, I want my day ruined and then my day blessed, right? I like to start down here. So, so let me, let, let's start with some of that, that, that bad news, right? What if the bad news is that persecution is coming and you cannot escape it? What if that's the bad news? What if the bad news is that bad times are coming? Suffering is coming and it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse. What if that's the bad news? But there is good news in this. The Savior you worship has conquered death and will reign supreme when he returns. The good news is that Christ rules and reigns, Christ has conquered death, and we patiently wait with endurance his final arrival. Shouldn't that make the bad news worth suffering through? What we have here on, on a first glance of this letter is it seems to be all bad news, right? And Jesus is basically saying, hey, hey, you guys in Smyrna, it's just going to get worse. The countdown is coming and it's, it's, it's all down here from there. But when we really look at what Jesus says, we actually see that he has reminded them that even amid this bad news, there was great hope for them to Grab a hold on to. Let's begin with the exchange here in verse 8. Um, the exchange. Uh, to the angel of the church, Smyrna, the angel, the word angel just means messenger. It's a transliteration in English. Could be a pastor or a bishop or whatever. A Smyrna and Ephesus were served by some great pastors. Um, John and Timothy and Paul had all been Ephesus. Uh, we talked about Polycarp last week, who dies in the second century, had had pastored Smyrna. These churches have been well-led, so this is likely a letter to that pastor, but it may not be. Uh, but it writes this, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, this is a typical of, of your, your average first century church, in, in, or a first century letter. What you get is a greeting, hey, how y'all doing? And you also get who wrote the letter and who is written to. Our letters are backwards. What we get is, dear Bob, and Bob is reading the letter addressed to him. Him. You millennials, just Google what a letter is. And, and Bob gets a letter addressed to him. He has no idea who's it from until he gets to the very end. Right? That makes no sense. Never has made sense to me, but here we are nonetheless. Right? Uh, um, and, but in, in the first century letters, you get who wrote it, who's written to, and a brief greeting. But, but notice the greeting here. It's addressed to Smyrna, and then we're told something about Jesus. And this is what matters is how Jesus identifies himself here. First of all, he says he is the first and the last. Now we've seen this before. Remember in Revelation chapter 1 we saw this. And what we said in chapter 1 is that the book opens and closes with Jesus claiming to be the first and last, the Alpha and the Omega. So the, one of the first and one of the last statements about Jesus is that he's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Isaiah has a bunch of this, right? Your King, your Redeemer says, I am the first and I am the last. Likewise in 48 and 41, uh, I, I, I am he, I am the first and the last. Right? This is, this is typical language that you will find in the Bible. And Jesus is identifying for himself that label of divinity. But not only does he say, I am the first and the last. He equally says, that I'm the one who died and came to life. Now, this is a clear reference to the cross and resurrection. At the cross, he died. At the resurrection, he is brought back to life. Now, this should be a message of encouragement for the Smyrnans, right? Smyrna is suffering severe persecution with more along the way. So Jesus reminds them that the one who writes this letter to them has conquered death. Suffering doesn't mean the end of anything. He has overcome it all. So yes, some of the Smyrna Christians may very well be put to death. Some may be put in prison. Some may lose their livelihood. But be encouraged. The one you worship has conquered death and hell. Well, that's the exchange. Let's look look more detail at the experience here. Now, unlike the Ephesian church, and... Most of the churches in Revelation. Jesus has nothing negative to say to the Smyrnans. I mean, like that'll ever happen today, right? I mean, I mean, right? I mean, I've talked to enough Christians, they all have something to complain about their local church. But not Jesus here. But the Smyrna Church has nothing negative to say about the Smyrnans and seems like a, a, a good goal to go for. But then again, we should know there's a reason for that. Suffering and persecution has a way of purifying the church. Think about it. If we were under direct severe persecution, would we have some of the conversations we're having? Would we be distracted by some of the things we're distracted by? Would there be a lot of church hopping right now? No, there's a great Babylon Bee headline. And it's something like Christians on Iran travel 500 miles to find a church that that meets all of their needs, right? I mean, it's it's nonsense, right? If you find a church, you're lucky in some places in the world. And the last thing you're going to do is start complaining about things that don't matter. Why? Because you're meeting secretly. It's very dangerous. Persecution has a way of purifying the church. But notice their, their suffering is threefold, according to Jesus here. The first is persecution, you see it there with the word tribulation. Remember, in Revelation, the word tribulation is, is, is typically not used in, in, the, in the formal sense, the great tribulation, something like that for you dispensations. It's rather used in a personal sense, that you will go through tribulation. And Revelation is, is reminds us that Christians do suffer through tribulation. But we should remind ourselves here that from its conception— Christianity has been a faith conceived in and purified by suffering. No other religion has as its genesis suffering, right? Whether whether you're looking at Islam or Judaism or Mormonism or or, or Buddhism or whatever ism you you may want, none of them begin in a moment of crisis, injustice, oppression, and suffering. None of them do, but Christianity does. It rises out of the experience of Roman injustice, which, which means that Jesus did not come to make you rich. He did not come to make you happy. Jesus comes that in dying, he calls us to join him by picking up our crosses and following him. By following him, we pursue holiness. By following him, we find true freedom. But it requires our own death. This is hinted at at the end of verse 11, isn't it, when he speaks of the second death, isn't it? But since that ascension of Christ, we see that not only has our Savior suffered under the persecution of man, but as he warned us, Christians throughout every page of history has suffered through persecution. In fact, there are more Christians under persecution living right now than ever in the history of the world. We had a representative a few years ago, back when things were normal, representing open doors speak to us about the many sufferings of Christians around the world. Right now, this is going on. I've known some people when I was in seminary who were called because they were single to go parts of the country. They were not to know where it was before they got on the airplane because it was too dangerous where they would go and share the gospel as a missionary. The Smyrnans were experiencing one of these state-led persecutions. It's likely led under a man by the name of Emperor uh, Domitian. Domitian ruled from 81 to 96, and so you can kind of see where I think Revelation was was written there at the end of the first century. And he is best remembered by his targeted persecution of Jews and Christians. Remember at this time, your average Roman did not separate the Jew and the Christian. We do that for obvious reasons, but, but this is the early century of Christianity. And so to them they thought, well, Christianity comes out of Judaism, therefore it must be a type of Jew. Judaism, right? And so you remember that the the temple was destroyed in AD 70, and what Rome did was they said the money that was going to the temple is now going to go to the Roman coffers. And so there was a targeted, particularly from Domitian, against the Jews, which then lumped the Christians in them. But the Christians had it quite severe. Uh, and, and we should also know that when Domitian's persecution against the Christians took place, a very severe one, one of the more severe ones in Rome, Nero being the first major one followed by Domitian and then another guy about 100 years later, um, is that they weren't, they weren't global. It wasn't throughout the entire empire, but rather it was targeted geographically. I don't know why, just the way it works. So Domitian's persecution took place in the city of Rome and in Asia Minor. Well, guess where John is writing the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation? They are all located in Rome. Guess who is targeted in the book of Revelation? It is Rome, among others, yes, but the oppressive power of Rome is certainly among those. So he he comes to power again right after the temple is destroyed. He is targeting them. And so severe was his targeted persecution that some of his own relatives, we know their names, Uh, Flavius Clemens, this will be on the test, and his wife were executed for being accused for being Christians who were both atheist and practicing Jewish practices. Now, Christians were accused of being atheists. Now, that sounds strange to us because, because we respond to atheism in our apologetics. But at this time, Christians refused to worship the pagan gods and to fall down before Caesar. Therefore, they have no gods, hence atheism. That was one of the many—they were accused of other—we've talked about them before. You, I won't put it on the test, so we'll just move forward. Now, these two martyrs, Flavius Clemens and his wife, are the only two named martyrs under Domitian that we have reserved. preserved. So we, we, we know there were hundreds, dozens others, but these are the only two that we know their names. Christ certainly has their name written in the Lamb book of life, those who suffered. This reminds me of Paul in Philippians 4. Remember what he said, that all the saints greet you, especially of those in Caesar's household. The mission is probably not Caesar. Actually, I can tell you he's not Caesar when Paul writes this. But it does tell you that the gospel is reaching every part of society. Now you need to know no Christian was exempt from this. If he's going to execute his own family member, surely he'll execute anyone else. And so what he demanded was if you are captured as a Christian by officials, you were to recant, you were to uh, make an offering or sacrifice the seizure to the gods, only then would you be set free after some punishment. Um, And to add to it, Christians were blamed for every earthquake, every epidemic, every famine, everything, right? Blamed for everything. Not that people would do anything like that today. In fact, citizens were bribed to turn in their neighbors and other people they may know who were Christians by the state. In fact, according to tradition, Timothy was executed under this persecution. He was, as we mentioned earlier, Bishop of Ephesus. And according to tradition, it's not in the Bible, he was executed because of this. In fact, one may consider that the letter to the Ephesian church we saw last week or two weeks ago very well could have been addressed to Timothy. He could have been the messenger to the church in Ephesus. Again, okay, we can't be for sure, but it's a possibility. But it is very likely, this is exactly what John has in mind when he speaks of persecution to these churches. We need to note that Smyrna is the most persecuted church of the seven, but they're not the only church to face certain persecution. We see and we've done this before, so I don't want to I don't want to belabor it, but we've seen the language of patient endurance in Revelation. It opens up with patient endurance. I, John, right, I'm suffering. John is likely on Patmos because of the Domitian persecution, right? He, remember, had been the bishop of Ephesus. Now he's on Patmos because of Caesar. Uh, he'll say, he says the same thing to, 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 to the Ephesian church. Patient endurance says the same thing to the church of Pergamum. We'll see next week to Thyatira, to Philadelphia. Uh, he, he's constantly saying, endure with great patience these troubling times. This is also why we should remember that Revelation is very negative towards Rome. Can I just prove to you that Revelation has Rome in mind? Yes, it it, likely has a future in mind. We we can't chase these rabbits. But I don't think there's any doubt that Revelation is also talking about the Roman Empire and condemning the Roman Empire, encouraging the church, this system will fall, and that is good news. A good hint of this is in chapter 17, where it mentions the... uh, well, later in chapter 17, this is, this is where Rome has the blood of martyrs, right? There's, a, there's another one, I don't think it's chapter 17, where it mentions the seven hills of Rome. Right? So I think it's very clear Rome is in mind throughout much of, of the book itself. But this persecution eventually does end for the church in uh, 96 AD, whenever Domitian, like Nero before him, was executed because people didn't like him. He was a tyrant, in case you couldn't tell. Right, and this is all that's going on. This is what they're, they're seeing on CNN. They're seeing their own people being executed, seeing their own people being arrested. One Sunday, they're in church, and you know they've got X amount of number of people. The next Sunday, an uh, entire family is missing because they were caught by the mission's persecution. So they're facing persecution. Jesus addressed that here. I know your tribulation. It's not just persecution; it's also poverty. It is likely their persecution resulted in poverty. After all, if you are a targeted person in society, who will sell to you? Who will give you a job? Who will invest in you? And throughout history, such uh, tyrannies and nations weaponize the economy in order to target, punish, and oppress those who dare not to conform. American Christians aren't exempt from this. We already see the weaponization effect of the market. Already each of us self-censor so as not to offend co-workers and neighbors in fear of losing our jobs, being demoted, or being publicly shamed. Added to this the monopoly of things like big tech and big government, this is becoming a serious problem. Now the marriage between the economy and corrupt, federalized false worship is seen later in the book of Revelation. Can you think of where it is? The mark of the beast. Now, we ain't got time to chase this rabbit. I ain't going to tell you, but I can tell you, the vaccine is not a mark of the beast. Okay? That's, if we had time, we would read Revelation 13. I probably offended somebody. I'll get over it. Revelation 13 has it if you want more details, verses 11 through 18. But two things you need to notice about the mark of the beast in, in, in Revelation 13. First of all, its significance in Revelation is you have two people marked, like two groups of people. The world is in in two groups of people, those marked by the beast and those marked by Christ. And so you can read in Revelation 7, among other places, that that believers are marked, they are sealed on the forehead by Christ. We overlook this, don't we? Because we get so worked up about the mark of the beast, right? It's Ronald Wilson Reagan. Each name is six letters, 666. It's, it's John Kennedy because he's the Pope's president, right? We do this all the time, right? And we miss the part where Christ seals. This is a language of assurance, believers, right? So there's a significance of that. So the mark of the beast marks, seals, its true believers. Secondly, what we need to see with the mark of the beast is the weaponization of the economy. And that is directly in play here with Sperna. What the mark of the beast is for our purposes today isn't important. What is important is its purposes. Governments want uniformity, not unity. Governments want conformity, not diversity. You, you, you get the differences, right? You can have unity, right? Let's all to get together. Let's celebrate our differences, but understand there's a common ideal, common thing bringing us together, right? Hopefully, it's what the Baptist Church is. We can all vote differently. We can all think differently. We all talk differently. all have you know, blue collar, white collar, whatever it is. Surely we can have unity because of Christ. Uniformity says unless you adopt these 800,000 things and be exactly like this, then you're an enemy. What governments want are uniformity, not unity. What governments want is conformity, not diversity, right? I mean, this is where we're, if you go into a major uh, university right now, what are you told? Well, we just want freedom of thought so long as you think like this, right? That is conformity in the disguise of diversity, but it ain't diversity. Like, if you still don't believe me, stand in the middle of a, a literal salt box in the middle of a university and say, Jesus Christ rules and reigns supreme. Repent believe the gospel. And let's see how much diversity comes thrown in your way, right? Governments and other things don't want those things. It's harder to control. Yet, despite all of this, notice what Jesus says about the Smyrna. I know your tribulations. I know your persecutions. I know your poverty. But, what does it say there? It's in your Bible. It's in mine. You're rich. Oh, Jesus, you're wrong. Their budget has been decimated because that one family that gives a little extra each month, they're now in prison waiting certain execution. They're not going to be able to pay their light bill. What are they gonna do? Church is gonna have to shut down. Can't function without that. Can't do it. That family's been in that church for a long time. They've supported everyone. What did Jesus say there? You are impoverished, yet you are rich. Now, again, this makes no sense to us as, as Americans. To be rich to us is to live a safe, middle class life. Live in a comfortable home, be able to pay your bills. Enjoy a nice vacation or two with a family, a few investments, a ready retirement, a good college education for the kids, enough pets to run a small zoo. This is what we think God owes us, right? And we can't say we are rich unless we have these things. We do this within the church. Unless we have a little extra to do this, unless we have the nicest of this, unless we have the perfect programs for that, unless we can take every trip and everything else, right? This is how we define it. Yet Jesus suggests something very different true wealth is spiritual first. Here's the thing. No matter how much money you make, you will never be rich until you discover true contentment, which is a spiritual issue. Have you ever noticed something? You can make more money and yet you're just drowning in debt the same as you were when you had less money. Have you ever noticed that? It's a strange phenomenon. Strange phenomenon. So you think, well, i got that little bit of rage. we got some freedom. No, you won't. The second your wife finds... No, I'm sorry. I'm, that, that's a joke. It's a joke. But you won't find true contentment until you discover this gym. You won't have peace or love or hope or joy unless you grasp this. Things are not saviors. Reputations will not redeem you. Positions, influence, nor wealth will set you free. Explain to me how America, the richest nation in the world, always ranks as among the most depressed and anxious nations of the world, despite our wealth. We are so wealthy, our economy still functions with nearly a $30 trillion national deficit. And that's not counting personal debts we all owe. We're so rich. How is it that impoverished Christians in Niger, Africa can live with a joy that wealthy American Christians often do not? How is it that an impoverished church in the third world baptizes more people annually than the average Baptist church in rich America? See, it's not about wealth. It's not about funds. Because it's not a physical issue, it's a spiritual issue. But notice, thirdly, the persecution, their poverty, and we've got to move on. Their perfidity. Now, even though I don't know what that word is. I don't know what it was either, but it has to start with a P. Otherwise, the spirit can't use it. What I have here is the word slander. It's in your text, slander. So if you don't know what perfidity is, perfidy. Per, I don't know what it is either, but it showed up on the thesaurus. I Googled it. it it's good enough. Leave me alone. Seminary professors made me do it, so blame them. Now, what you have here slander. Now, it's 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 from the Jews who who aren't Jews, they are the synagogue of Satan. Now, that won't get you a book deal today. Now, although in the eyes of Rome, Christianity was tied to Judaism, both Jews and Christians understand there's a clear difference between them. And what is likely happening here is that those who, who are suffering together have actually turned against each other, Jews and Christians. And so you're getting a Christian perspective saying some of you will be turned over by those who should sort of side with you because you're, you're in this together. It's likely what, what is happening here. I don't want to spend forever on this. By the way, this term synagogue is Satan is used again in chapter 3, verse 9. We'll see it again whenever we get there. But there, there's your three. So, you, so you, you've you got persecution from the government, poverty likely caused by the government just through your own experiences in, in this nation, and then you, you have the antagonism from your own neighbors. I mean, this is a church that is suffering greatly. And to think about it, people still came to church despite it. Well, let's look quickly at the encouragements. Because I think we need some at this point, don't we? In light of these troubling developments in Smyrna, Jesus encourages the church in two ways. Two ways. The first you see beginning of verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's the first one. Do not fear. It is natural for each of us to fear suffering, persecution, and oppression. I mean, frankly, we fear shots, don't we? I mean, the the vaccine's a good example of this. We hear that some people have a bad day afterwards. We think, do I want two weeks of bad days or do I want one or two days of bad days? And we really start thinking, right? We're scared of death shots. I get that. But what if it means to be oppressed by your government, hated by your enemies, and an early death for you and your family? I think fear is natural, isn't it? but the cross makes such fear unnecessary. Remember what he says there in verse eight, the one who died and came to life. Suffering does not mean God is absence. If there's one message, I wish more Christians believed it is that. How many of our pews are empty because people believe that they suffer because God doesn't love them? God has forsaken them. God has forgotten them. Suffering never means that God is absent or that he doesn't care. Suffering is part of living in a broken world made of of broken people and broken agendas. The kingdoms of this world has always been at war with with the kingdom of God. This is why political allegiance at the cost of the gospel is extremely dangerous. This world is not our home. But Jesus shows that though their suffering is inevitable and it is real and it will be harsh, they do not suffer alone. Notice again the language Jesus used here. they in verse nine. I know your tribulations. I know your poverty. I know your slander. Jesus isn't up there in the distance saying, gosh man, that is... That is rough, man. I saw it on a commercial with, with people crying and, and sad Sarah McLachlan music in the background, and Jesus is like, dude, that looks hard. No, the message is Christ has become one of us, has lived with us, has put up with us, walked in our shoes and, and dealt with our dirt, All without sin. This is the point of of Hebrews 4, right? He is like us in every way, yet without sin. Which means he knows what it means to go to those funerals. He knows what it means to be hated, despised. He knows what it means to be threatened. He knows all of those experiences. I know your sufferings. Do not fear. I think the prophet Isaiah put it as good as anyone in history. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear. Do not fear. Dear Christian, what have we been doing for the last year? Living in a constant state of fear. Why? Is your Redeemer not the sovereign Lord over the universe? Act like it. Will times get more difficult and hard for believers in Christ? Probably. But God is the Savior of the universe. He rules and reigns over the nations, and He's with His people. Act like it. Act like it. Let me tell you, if Jesus were standing right here, right here, would you be afraid of anything? No. Not the one who can walk on water, liberate the demonized, and conquer kingdoms with his word. Is he not here with you now, dear believer? Then why do you fear? Why do you fear? The second thing Jesus wants The church to see they should not fear but instead they should be faithful you see it in the rest of verse 10 don't you behold the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation be faithful unto death i'm sorry that that's that's a misprint. take out the part unto death can can you just take that part out Get your pen out. It could be a feather pen to make it more official. And just mark out unto death that shouldn't be there. John made a mistake. No, that's not what it says, is it? I think God inspired that part too. Be faithful to the point they're lighting the sticks on fire. Be faithful to the point that the lion's jaw grips your neck. Be faithful to the point that those prison bars are closed. Be faithful to the point, you're filing bankruptcy. Be faithful to the end. Be faithful. Do not choose fear, but choose faith. And I will give you a crown of life. You see see what he just said there? Don't fear death, but hold fast to the life I give you is far better. Choose this day which kingdom you will behold the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of man. One will drive you to fear and one will bring you to faith. This is not a faith that says suffering will not come, but rather I will be ready for when it does. Notice that Jesus desires their suffering with faithfulness to the point of death. Your faith could kill you, but don't worry. You will receive a crown, a crown, The reward of faith is far greater than any loss we may experience in this life. Isn't that worth it? So why do you care so much about what other people think about you? Why are you so worked up about what happens in the news? Be faithful. The creator of the ends of the earth reigns. And you can't forget how it ends, right? He who has an ear, I've got one left, so I still qualify here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to who? The church? No, because it's not just written to Smyrna. To the churches. And what's the promise here at the end? The one who conquers. If we had time, we could trace that word throughout the entire book. The one who conquers will not be conquered hurt by the second death. You choose which one you should fear the most. The death here on earth or the death everlasting. Which one should you fear the most? We'll all die here. We don't need to die again. You shall conquer by faith. And that's a kingdom that can't be shaken no matter what may pass in D.C. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. My father asks, you would be gracious to us that we, we will live by faith and not by fear. And Lord, I don't know what the future looks like or holds for us. I, I really don't. I don't have